0: Yeah. Hey.
1: Well, here we are, the last installment of this series, Restore and Renew, as we head out into a new year. The whole idea being that uh, as we walk with Christ, we need to be constantly restored, uh, rejuvenated, renewed. Uh, Not that He is weak, but we we are weak. Uh, It's like eating and drinking every day. You've got to keep rehydrated and uh, fortified and nourished. And so to be renewed and restored is simply the normative way that we continually realign in our relationship with God. Uh, How's that going for you? Uh, It's easy to plateau and say, gosh, I'm kind of restless or bored. This happens in every relationship, by the way. And So a signal for you in a marriage, for example, is if you're feeling bored uh, is to say, okay, what am I taking for granted and what am I not doing uh, to invest in this relationship? Uh, Typically, when we're bored, we're saying, I'm just not engaged. And so this happens in our faith. Uh, and so the beginning of a year is a great opportunity to say, okay, okay what uh, is normative uh, in what I'm doing to grow in my faith, uh, appropriate my faith, express my faith? And so we've been asking all kinds of questions uh, in uh, the last six weeks, about uh, about the last uh, eight weeks about that. And so our last, solu- our last uh, installment today is talking about loving community and specifically, what does it mean uh, to love the city? Uh, Last week, uh, we talked about our responsibility being to care for ourselves, for our families, and for others. Uh, And we do this in our sphere of influence. But what about the city? Who cares for the city? Uh, Years ago, uh, I wanted to talk about this. And so I wanted to do it from a political perspective. So I asked a a very well-known Democrat leader in San Diego who is a follower of Jesus and a very well-known national Republican leader, Uh, to come and speak and talk about from their perspective as followers of Jesus what it looked like to bless a city. Uh, Both of them being much involved in the life of cities. Uh, And it was really neat to ask that question. And all this thinking, gosh, how can I bless my city? Well, not long after that, uh, a friend of mine called me and he said, hey, I just was with a guy who was my, uh, my fraternity brother at Stanford University a million years ago. And he's a big deal business person in San Diego now. And I, I suggested he call you and get in touch with you. I said, well, why? He said, just so you guys get to know each other. And he's been watching me grow my faith. And I I want him to have a chance to talk about uh, what that might look like in his life. So I thought, okay. So this guy calls me. And uh, he can be a very intimidating guy. This guy has done so many things. And really would, would rightfully be called one of the fathers of the city. And so... Uh, not not in terms of founder, but in terms of a person uh, whom leaders would ask, what do you think about this? Uh, Because of his credibility as a philanthropist, uh, a leader, a business person, uh, a civic uh, influence. So anyway, he invited me to his office downtown. His name was on the building. I went up to the penthouse where his office was, and we had this delightful conversation over lunch. And he said, so hey, we have a mutual friend in in Mike. Uh, Why do you think he wanted us to get together? And I said... Well, I, I think he's growing in his faith, and he thought, "My, we, we might talk about that." And I'm a pastor. My kid not told him I'm a pastor. He said, "Well, it's interesting. I have a faith. I, you know, I, I identify with this church, and uh, it's a great church tradition. But it, very clearly, for him, it was an interesting part of his life, but not a formative or a a core point of his life out of which he'd make all of his best decisions. Because when I asked him this question, uh, he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And the question was, what would it look like for the church, for the body of Christ, uh, to bless the city of San Diego? And he had this blank look on his face. He said, well, Steve, that, that's an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that question, and I, I don't have an answer. I just don't really have a category for that. How, uh, I guess the church you know, does good things. and, uh, and So the idea of, of, of the church specifically being a blessing to a city was lost on this guy. And this is a guy who is super smart. Uh, He was the chairman of the board of one of the world's top universities, for example. Very accomplished person. Very thoughtful person. Truly a great person. Years later, uh, uh, I saw him after another one of the fathers of the city had passed away. and I said, how does it feel to have that on your shoulders? He said, it's a big burden. Uh, It's a big burden. And out of his humility he said, you know, I want to do whatever I can to help the city. And so he's asking the same question. What would it look like to bless the city? But he wasn't seeing it through the, the eyes of faith. And I think this is one of the things that is really important for the body of Christ to constantly come back to. And that is to say, not how do we control a city or how do we get credit for all the great things we do in a city, but how do we consciously, intentionally go out of our way to bless our city? Big, big question. Uh, if somebody were to ask you to describe your relationship with the city of San Diego, what would it be? Would it be a blank look on your face? Well, I don't know. I guess I live here, so what would you say? Uh, Would you be a booster or would you be a critic? Uh, Would you be some appropriate combination of both? Uh, Years ago, uh, Janet and I met uh, a wonderful man named Sergio. He's from Naples. Uh, He could be the unofficial mayor of Naples. He loves that city so much. He knows so much about it. Seeing Naples through his eyes transformed it for being this gritty... Uh, mafia obsessed, uh, you know, really problematic place where it's easy to get murdered, uh, uh, robbed. Into this place where, wow, this guy really sees the heart of Naples, and it wasn't just that he was a booster, you know, chamber of commerce representative type person, but rather you could see his heart for the city and the way he had invested himself in the city and the way he was making a difference in it. And again, it wasn't from a point of boasting; it was from a point of loving. Very, very powerful impact. So last week we talked about this passage out of Jeremiah that I want to return to. Uh, Jeremiah twenty nine seven. The context being the people of Jerusalem have been carried off into Babylon, uh, uh, basically Iraq, from, uh, out of their disobedience and rebellion against God. God had been warning them through the prophets and they weren't paying attention and so God allowed them to be carried off into exile. And the false prophets among them said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll be home no time soon. Well, God said to Jeremiah, tell them they're going to be here for a long time. In fact, they'll be here for 70 years. And so Jeremiah says uh, from from God's message, uh, under God's authority, also uh, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. This is uh, Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper Now last week we talked about caring for other people. Certainly this isn't a message to care for people, but it's given through the the perspective of the city. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers you too will prosper. Now this word prosper and the prosperity of the city is the word shalom. We know the word as peace. Peace sounds a bit inadequate though to describe this word because what it is is the transforming presence of God in a person's life or the life of a community. And so shalom is is the integration of a person or a community around righteousness and goodness and holiness uh, that reflects the very character of God and transforms the character of people. So shalom is a powerful, powerful word. And he's saying, seek the shalom of the city. Give the city the shalom of God, and you will be blessing that city, and it will be a blessing to you as well. So that's that's the big picture here. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jim Smythe. I wish you could meet Jim Smythe. He's a character. I, I, I've known Jim since seventh grade, and he's a larger-than-life guy. He fills a room when he walks into it. He's just a delight. And uh, Jim, after uh, the sale of a family business, Uh, could live and do whatever he wanted to do, and uh, he wanted to live in California part of the year, but he loved New York City, and so he decided to live there. And he loved it so much, uh, when anybody visited him, he would give them a a grand tour of the city, and people would say, that is such a great tour. And uh, even people in New York City uh, started to pick up on the fact that this guy knows the city and loves the city like few people uh, I've met. And so uh, out of that came this company, created a tour company called New York My Kind of Town or my kind of town, New York. And it it was simply uh, him and a couple of uh, unemployed actors, I I guess I repeat myself, uh, actors who were New Yorkers who would lead these tours. So he had these two SUVs, two new uh, Mercedes uh, SUVs, and either he or the guys that, that worked for him would take you on a tour. And I can tell you that everybody I've ever recommended take this tour has come back saying, I thought of New York. I thought I knew New York. I had no idea how awesome New York was until I, I saw it from these guys' perspective. They have a love for the city. Uh, Jim knows New York City like very few people I know. He loves it. That's the thing you pick up from him. He loves it because he knows it. He knows people in it. He knows why he loves it. He can articulate that. And New York City is is five boroughs. Maybe you already know that. Uh, Manhattan, Queens, uh, Brooklyn, uh, the Bronx, uh, and uh, I can't think of the other one. (laughs) But five boroughs, and within those boroughs are any number of neighborhoods. And when you see the city through Jim's eyes, you not only see the, the grandeur of the whole city, you get to see the specific nature and identity and quality an attraction of each of these unique neighborhoods. And he'll do it from the perspective of, what would you like to see? What are you interested in? We'll look at that part of New York, and of course, it takes you all over the city, whether you're involved, you're interested in finance or fashion, food, whatever. So, like New York City or London or Jerusalem or any city for that matter, San Diego is a city. It's a cluster of neighborhoods. How many neighborhoods would you guess there are in San Diego? In the San Diego proper, the city of San Diego. Well, I'll tell you this. There are nine police divisions, police departments, one department, nine divisions in the city of San Diego. And they have organized the city into neighborhoods. And, and they have organized the city in these nine divisions into 125 neighborhoods. Does that blow your mind? I mean, off the top of your head, how many neighborhoods could you name? Maybe Six? maybe maybe 10, possibly a dozen, there's 125 neighborhoods in San Diego. And you know, just one of those neighborhoods is La Jolla, uh, zip code 19037. But I can tell you that La Jolla has probably at least a dozen, if not more, specific neighborhoods within that small space of La Jolla. And I started to think, well, there's 125 official neighborhoods but each of those neighborhoods probably has like La Jolla a, another half a dozen or dozen uh, parts of the city that represent distinct distinct unique neighborhoods I mean my gosh there's 200 schools in San Diego those represent neighborhoods 46 fire departments 59 private schools you know 200 public schools so all these neighborhoods are overlapping and they all matter to somebody they all matter to somebody we live in a beautiful and a vibrant city with lots and lots of needs who meets those needs? Well, certainly the officials of the city, the administration of the city, the various entities, you know, fire, police, power, you know, gas, electric, water, all that is part of it. But, but even all those official entities can't possibly meet all the needs of the city. So who are the people who care about their city and who care about the people in the city? That's the big question I'm asking. Are you one of them? What's the church's role in being that kind of person? that kind of community, that would say, we care about our city. Not to get credit for doing stuff, not to promote ourselves or our cause, but simply to be God's hands and feet in the city, along with lots of other people who might not profess faith in Christ, but would say, I care about my city too. And I can tell you, I wish I had time to tell you all the amazing examples of people doing specific and significant things within the city. All I'm saying is that the body of Christ, surely, because God has a heart for people and the city, we should be doing our part to love and care for our city. And so my, my, the first big point of the message of the morning of the day is this, how do you define your community? How do you love your community? Whether it's the whole city of San Diego or, or the neighborhood in which you live or the area in which you work or the, the network uh, in which you travel and, and relate within San Diego, how are you defining your community? identifying your community, caring for your community, how are you loving that community? Well, it, it, we, ha- we can break it down into two parts. We, ha- we all have a relational community and a geographical community, and those overlap, right? We talked about the relational part last week, uh, your sphere of influence. Your sphere of influence uh, is significant. Uh, the sphere of influence uh, would be family, friends, contacts, anyone you, you know, with, with whom you have a, a, some, either a significant or a functional relationship, that would be part of your sphere of influence. But we also have a geographical community. Uh, it's where we're from, perhaps. Where are you from? Do you still have an identity uh, based on where your family is from? Uh, whether it's another country, another city, a community which you, you started life, or your parents started life, your grandparents started life. So you might have a strong identity with a, a geographical place but not the one you live in, but you also have a strong geographical identity where you actually live, where you work, where you worship, where you shop, where you go to school. Um, Did you leave your heart in San Francisco or just your money? Is London calling? Uh, Every Passover, the Diaspora Jews, Diaspora just means the scattered Jews. All those Jews who don't live in Israel, don't live uh, adjacent to Jerusalem. Those Jews around the world, at the end of the Passover meal, will say this wonderful thing. Hab'a next year in Jerusalem. They have this sense of geographic affinity. A love for this place. They, they have never been perhaps or might never ever visit. But they keep saying, next year in Jerusalem. That's powerful. This geographical community, this identity geographically. Think of all the people who live in this country who send remittances, who send money to other parts of the world, to their home village, their hometown, uh, in Mexico, Latin America, Asia, Africa. And these families in those places and the, and the community in which those families live in these faraway places depend on that money. It becomes a significant part of their economy. All these people who still count that geographical place, far from where they actually live now, as, as significant to them. So this is the interesting thing. We have this relational and geographic sense of community. Uh, Jesus... Uh, demonstrated this, we see in the scriptures Jesus wept two times. Jesus is recorded as weeping two times uh, as he as he goes to the last week of his life. The first occasion was for a person; the second was for a place. The first, if you remember, he wept over Lazarus, Lazarus, his friend who had died, and then he raised Lazarus from the dead. And then, coming into the city of Jerusalem, remember, Jesus wept over the city. He wept over Jerusalem. So we see in Jesus's Care and concern um, people, relationships, and a place, geography, Lazarus and Jerusalem. How do you love your relational and geographic community how do you how do you relate to it? And how do you love it? Uh, this is a powerful, powerful thing to to reflect on How do you love your relational community and care for them, demonstrate your concern for them. And how do you do that with a geographical area? Of course, the geographical area represents people. But how do you put your heart and your arms around both the people close to you and that larger community within which uh, you live? Uh, so, here's here's some ideas about how to do that. First of all, you, you need to know it. Knowing your, your, your community is important? Is it personal to you or is it simply functional and transactional for you? I shop, I do this, I do that. It's just stuff I do. Or is it I, I know the people at the checkout stand. I know the people in my community who provide goods and services. Like I know my own family and friends. Know it. How about own it? Uh, is the community in which you live part of the fabric of your life or just a backdrop for your life? You really see it as, as, as another relationship in your life, not just a backdrop, a set piece uh, for your awesome life. How about supporting it? What does it need that you can provide? How do you give and serve to your neighborhood? Your, your literally, literally one street neighborhood, your several block neighborhood, the section of town in which you live, or, or aspects of the larger community? How do you support it? And then finally, how do you stay connected? Who can you call? Who can call you? Who do you know? What do you know uh, in terms of what's going on in your community? These are specific ways that you can love your relational and geographic uh, community. The first big idea of the morning uh, of the day would be how do you define your community? How do you love it? The second would be this. That La Jolla Community Church is a relational and geographical community of communities. This church exists in a zip code, 92121, and people from 92121 Uh, are part of this church. But people in lots of other zip codes are also part of this church. Pretty much any church these days in a city is regional. Very rare do you find a church that's literally just uh, uh, reflective of the small neighborhood around it. That you could actually walk to church. Very few people. uh, In our church most people, a couple people walk, uh, other people ride their bikes, some people drive. So for some people it's a very short drive. Uh, for some people, it's a longer drive. This is the nature of most modern churches. One church, many zip codes. We're local and regional as are most churches. We connect together, then we disperse to serve and have impact locally and globally. And so our mission as a church is both internal and external. That is, we, we're internal. Like a family would be have an internal mission to care for the family members, to, get them, uh, to give them support and encouragement, to love them and feed them and uh, send them out the door. So we're internally connected as a church. All those things that we do to organize, to plan, to equip, to worship, to teach, to serve, give, and nurture within the church, teaching Sunday school, leading a youth group, uh, playing in the, in the worship band, being a greeter, uh, serving on the board of trustees. All those are significant things that help us have a strong foundation from which we leverage our mission and our ministries. And so then the external focus of that of that uh, internally connected community called our church, La Jolla Community Church, our external focus is that we go and serve and give and connect and proclaim and teach and demonstrate the gospel in all kinds of creative ways. So we do it uh, internally to help our, our church function, but then really the larger part of what we do is going out in the name of Jesus to where we go to school, to where we work, to all those other commitments and networks that we're a part of. And so mission and ministry is simply how we demonstrate God's love in practical ways. Uh, Ministry tends to be something personally that you're part of. Mission tends to be something a little bit further out. Uh, They're they're very interchangeable in terms of what they mean, mission and ministry. And so for us, um, mission would be our larger sense of what we're about and how we connect locally and globally. And then ministries would be the specific ways, specific commitments we make uh, to getting that done. So Let me give you a workable, functional definition of mission and ministry. It's using your resources to meet others' needs, motivated by your faith. Very simple. It's you using your resources to meet other people's needs, motivated by your faith. It's me using my resources to meet other people's needs, motivated by my faith. Mission and ministry. It's not an ulterior motive, by the way. It's an ultimate Uh, way of life. It's an ultimate goal. It's an ultimate frame of reference. Ulterior is that I do stuff for a hidden reason. It's not really clear why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm I'm trying to get something. Uh, That's not what we're about. When we do mission and ministry, we're we're not withholding information. We're very clear about who we are. Very clear. It's not an ulterior motive. It's an ultimate motive to honor God and bless people. And so I don't necessarily lead with my faith wherever I go. But you can't know me for very long and not know that it's my faith that ultimately motivates me. So if I'm talking to somebody who's not a believer, I don't see him as not a believer. I see him as a person. If it turns out that they're not a believer, I'm not withholding information about my faith so I can somehow angle the conversation around faith. I'm very forthcoming, but in an appropriate way, they'll figure out as they talk to me, get to know me, oh, you're a pastor. You must be, are you a Christian? Yeah. So it becomes very much part of who I am not a hidden thing that i 'm either embarrassed of i 'm withholding in order to to somehow mug somebody in the name of jesus uh, it 's an ultimate way of seeing my life, seeing my world, so that I use whatever God has entrusted to me to bless other people, motivated by his love for me and my love for him. That makes sense, which brings us to the third point, if the first point was that uh, was the asking the question, "How do you define your community, and how do you love your community?" The second point being that our church is a relational and geographical community—a community of communities. The third uh, big point is this: What does loving your community mean to you at this point of life? What does loving your community mean to you at this point of life? When we love our community, what we're talking about is adding value that increases shalom. Remember, the peace and prosperity of the city. So therefore, if this, is, if this age and stage of your life uh, is that you're a, you're a young person, you're in elementary school, you're in junior high, you're high school, you have to ask yourself the question, well, what does loving my community look like? Maybe it's I don't cheat in school. Maybe it's I don't cheat in sports. Maybe it's I don't talk about people in negative ways. Maybe it's that I, I want to be uh, a person that people can trust. Uh, I do honest work. I don't lie to my parents. I confess what I've done wrong and I, I do my best to make it right. I mean, those are some pretty basic functional ways, right, that we add value that increases shalom and in loving our community. And so, what specific people and needs in your community are you loving in Jesus' name? it's appropriate age and stage to ask that question what would loving my community look like at this age of stage if you're uh, young parents or small kids you might say well uh, our kids sports are a way that we serve the larger community it's, yeah, it's for our kid but we want to support the team uh it's working with pta it's working in organizations that might be blessing families uh and providing meals for families that are having a hard time any number of ways. As you look at every age and stage you go through, what are the ways that God has given you access to love your community? What specific people and needs has he brought into your life or can you have access to in your community that allow you to love people in Jesus' name? Not just from a distance as an abstraction. I love humanity. But who are the people? In what situations are you uh, caring for your community that makes a difference? Now certainly we can do this and should do this individually in our sphere of influence. Uh, Remember, sphere of influence are those strong and weak links. Uh, You might think it's odd to talk about sphere of influence as having strong and weak links. But strong links would be your immediate family and your closest friends. But weak links are all those touch points that allow you to be connected to a larger community. In the geographic community in which you live and far beyond. Here's how that works for me. Every week uh, inevitably somebody will text me, email me, call me, uh, and say, hey, I got this need. Do you know anybody who could help me with that? Or what would I do to to explore this or pursue this? And more often than not, I'll think, I have, I don't know. And then I'll think, well, wait a minute. I know so-and-so, and they know so-and-so, or they do this. And so I will put people together. In appropriate ways, I'll put them together and then step out of the way. So those are weak links and that the p- person I'm calling to ask them to help somebody they don't know. The link is me, and it's weak because we're not always talking. I'm not always talking to these people, but we have some kind of relationship. There's enough credibility and trust that when I call them, they're not thinking, oh, what am I getting into? But rather, they know if I call them and say, hey, here's something I, I think you might be interested in, it's gonna be actually interesting to them. They're gonna wanna know, and they'd be bummed out if I hadn't given them an opportunity. They don't owe me anything, we're not exchanging anything. It's just those, what are called weak links but the weak links in life, ironically and, and counterintuitively, are the thing that keep a community strong. All those connect points. It's not just I'm always getting to know people so I can get something from them. I might need them someday. Never. It's about just in the course of being engaged in life, you connect with so many people. And it's wonderful to think that at some point, and be knows to either of you, God says, hey, here's an opportunity for you to bless somebody. And we get to be the person making that connection. You have that in your life. Take time to think about it, who those people are. You probably practice this every day, every week, without even thinking about it. But see, this is our sphere of influence. Now, where I'm going with this is that it's really powerful when you combine your sphere of influence with somebody else's sphere of influence. When we combine uh, resources for a greater impact. Combining insor- resources for a greater impact. It's one of the great concepts of, of, of Orange and orange is, is the philosophy that we come at when we do ministry in our church, uh, right? It's, the, it's the, the, the bright light of the gospel and the warm heart of a family connected become orange. We're a family of families. And so what we wanna do as a church family is to combine influences for a greater impact. And that's what we do as we go to love our city. How can I have a sphere of influence joined with other people's sphere of influence that collectively, cooperatively, collaboratively we get to make a much larger, more significant, long-term impact than we could have ever done that on our own. What, what we do on our own is, is very hard to sustain. What we do together allows generations of people to be a part of something powerful and transformational. So who are your ministry partners? How are you encouraging them? Who are those people that you are linking spheres of influence with? Are you cheering them on? Are you resourcing them? Are you encouraging them? Are you processing with them what works and what doesn't work? Are you celebrating your successes and, and commiserating with each other over your, your fails? Because that will happen. You'll be trying to help and you will make mistakes uh, along the way. And, and who's encouraging you in your ministry? By the way, can you articulate your ministry? Now you might do things spontaneously that you really don't articulate. You think, well, somebody needed help, I helped them. But are there some other things that you do on a regular basis? You can say, you know, I think my ministry would be this. I tend to find myself doing these sorts of things. I, I feed the, the homeless and the hungry every week through this organization. I'm on a team that, that teaches Sunday school. Uh, I, uh, I build houses down in Mexico. I work on habitat progr- uh, projects in San Diego. Uh, I'm part of a, of a ministry in the country of Malawi. that's transforming that place. What I could never do on my own, I'm part of this incredible movement of God's spirit uh, that is making a difference in that very poor African country. Whatever it might look like or sound like uh, from, from your experience and your particular participation, that's how you would describe your ministry. These are the things that I'm involved in, that I contribute to, that I pray for, that I cheer on. What is your ministry? And by the way, if it's not clear to you, have you written out a personal mission and ministry statement? Now, now, you, now, before your eyes glaze over and say, "Oh gosh, I knew there'd be homework." What I'm saying is, unless you have thought about what is my mission, who am I, and because of who I am, what do I do? That's a, that's the core of your mission. If you haven't written down a mission statement, uh, you're underutilizing your capacities. You're underleveraging your resources. Because if you can't articulate what your mission is, you don't know how to measure it, you don't know how to say yes, you don't know how to say no. And you become quickly overwhelmed with, I'm just too busy. I've got little kids running around, or I've got sick relatives I'm taking care of, or my my job is demanding, I travel, uh, I'm too young, I'm too old. you have any number of reasons to say, I just can't. Or really, I just won't. But when you have a mission statement, And you can start to articulate the kind of ministry that you you feel like you're drawn to. Again, using your SHAPE, that acronym, spiritual gifts, heart, aptitude, personality, experience. When You've taken the time to write down who you think you are and what you're really called to do. All of a sudden you find a way to, in the midst of your very busy life, with all the demands that come with that, you find yourself being able to say yes to things and appropriately no to things as you move through time. You end up giving more time, more money, more compassion than you ever thought possible and it's only because you got a little bit and enough organized to say you know what, this is who I am, this is what I do now if there's, if if I can be helpful to you in helping you craft a mission statement let me know uh, email us here at La Jolla Community Church org, email me if you have my email address email me if you have my number, text me and I would like to host a Zoom call for anybody who's interested to talk about, here's how you construct a simple mission statement that has vast implications, certainly for your spiritual life and growth, for your family's benefit and development, your, your marriage, your, your parenting, et cetera. And it also has big impact for you professionally. I can help you create a very simple, for free, <laughs> just a gift. I will spend some sessions, maybe one, maybe more, uh, on a Zoom call talking about what it looks like to create your mission statement. And just that nudge will probably be enough to get you into it. Because once you start to do it, it, it's energizing. The eye glazing goes away and you all of a sudden get focused and say, I am loving thinking about what God has entrusted to me. Because you'll see how your calendar and your finances and your priorities reveal who you are in terms of your mission and your ministry, what you do because of your mission and your ministry. Uh, It'll, say, it'll tell you volumes about who you are, where you are in your faith, and about your capacity to love. Uh, it will shape the story of your faith. It will extend it, it will deepen it, it will correct it, and it will align it. Just that small effort will bring uh, your life in Christ and the magnificent gift that your life is into clear focus for you. It'll also be the basis for your legacy to people now, and to those you leave behind in the future. It'll help you do an inventory of everything uh, that matters to you. Time, talent, treasure, networks, big goals, big aspirations, all of it. Very simply. Last week I said ministry is like an orange. All the segments make it whole. So we're not parting it out. Well, here's my spiritual side, here's my, no. You're an orange, you're a tangerine, right? And when you open up out of the skin, you say, oh my gosh, there's segments. Yeah, of course, all these segments come together. And so that's why you can't disqualify, discount yourself at any age or stage. Well, I'm only this. I don't have that. No, this is who you are. What do those segments look like at at various ages and stages? What does that rhythm of work and rest look like from being a little kid dependent on everybody uh, to that person of great maturity and resource for whom many people are depending on? And that person who says, gosh, you know, I don't know how much longer I have to live, but what, what I have, here's how I want to use. So I said that ministry and mission is like an orange. All the segments make it whole. I want to add to that and, and, wrap, and wrap up with this, that, that ministry and mission is like a puzzle. They're like a puzzle, fitting pieces together, revealing a big picture. Sometimes you start with a very clear vision. This is what I want to do. But then you immediately see that all, that, all those, that, that picture dissolves into a 1,001 little pieces. You think, oh my gosh, I can't possibly pull all these together it's overwhelming to try to do a puzzle because you have a thousand pieces on a table you think, I have no idea. It looked really good when I saw the box, but now that they're on the table, I have no idea how to get there. Because a puzzle, by definition, is a perplexing question or a difficult problem. That's why we do them. It's an interesting challenge. It's fun to do. It's especially fun when you're doing it with other people. I'm the worst puzzle person in our family. Uh, Janet and the girls are so much better at doing puzzles and they let me tag along. And the only way I can really stay interested in a puzzle is that I'm doing it with them. And by doing it with them and they go away, I can keep doing it because we've been doing something together. Maybe you're like that. Or maybe you're the one who's really great at puzzles and and you make it possible for everybody else to jump in. In any case, anything significant in life is a puzzle. Lots of pieces uh, that could go into a bigger picture if you just know how to put it together. So doing a puzzle is a test of your ingenuity and your capacity to concentrate. Sometimes you realize there's pieces missing uh, (laughs) uh, or you need to organize them so you can see patterns and make better progress. Some parts are easy, others are challenging. Uh, In any case, it's worth doing. It's worth doing because if your life is this puzzle, what a shame to leave all the pieces in the box or on the table. How wonderful to say, I have this vision for what I want life to be. I see all these pieces in front of me. And by God's grace and in the company of his people and some, and some friends and family and, and, and mentors or coaches, I'm going to do my best to put these pieces together because I, don't, I know God himself is going to help me do that. And as I put those pieces together, uh, a picture will emerge. Something whole will come out of all those parts. Loving anything is a puzzle. It's worth all the effort we put into it. Loving our community by caring for it is part of our calling in Christ. It can be puzzling, but it can also be deeply satisfying if we're willing to jump in. It should reflect our true capacity to give, and it will increase our capacity to love. That's how powerful this is. That's how powerful and transformational this is. That's why we call it an aspect of uh, restoration and renewal. Avoiding puzzles isn't the way to to get restored or renewed. Engaging in those puzzles from a fresh perspective. Getting up and walking around, looking at it from different angles. Being perplexed and having little tiny breakthroughs. That's what restoration and renewal looks like. And that's why it's so powerful and so attractive and so absolutely necessary to our highest functioning and our deepest satisfaction and enjoyment of life. It's like what Jeremiah said. If you want to bring peace and prosperity to this place, this is what you do. So I leave you with this thought. God's at work in people. God's at work in his church. God's at work in the community. Will you work with him? Are you working with him? If you haven't really started, now's the time. Jump in. Start with baby steps and see where it takes you. If you're in the midst of it and you feel like the world's crushing you because you've taken on so much, take a break and step back and say, okay, what is mine and what isn't mine here? How do I realign and regain my sense of a rhythm of work and rest? How do I say yes appropriately and how do I say no appropriately so I can be focused on the thing that is my sweet spot? I'll leave you with this passage out of 1 Corinthians 15.58. We touched on it last week and so I bring it to you again because it's that important. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's worth it. Why? Because he's already at work in it. He's already working on it. And he's simply inviting you and me and all of us to participate. If we don't participate, it won't get done. Not because God can't do it without us. God chooses to include us in the work. This is why it is absolutely essential that we embrace it. So, Lord Jesus, I pray for myself, for my family, for my brothers and sisters watching this message, listening to it. You'd open our hearts and our minds in a fresh way to be restored and renewed as we start to care more deeply than ever for our city, for the neighborhoods within it. You'd help us see that there is something bigger that we're a part of, that we can actually contribute because we're doing it uh, with you and your people. We're also doing it with people who maybe don't know you but care for the city. So in the process, Lord, all kinds of great conversations uh, can come out of this. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. Thanking you for the opportunity to be alive in you, to grow in you, to serve uh, you, to honor and glorify you and to bless people in your name. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let me leave you with this benediction, this good word from the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord Himself shine on you that you might reflect His glory. May the Lord give you the desires of your heart. May the Lord do His work in you in such a way that you would be transformed by His presence in you. That you be a gift to others in His name. Both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.